Hey, welcome to The Look Back, my pandemic podcast, or hopefully post-pandemic podcast, broadcasting here from the basement of Newman Media Studios. My name is Keith Newman, and I'm the host of The Look Back. And this is a place where we have some fun conversations with old friends, a few newsmakers, and some rule breakers, all in the name of sharing insights and experiences, along with a little bit of levity and fun. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you're so inclined, or perhaps even open to some bribery, you'll share this podcast with some friends who might also enjoy it. Let's go on to the show. Hey, hey, hey. Hi, how are you? Ron, I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Where do you hang your hat now? In a Sleepy Mellow Park. Now, is it true? And by the way, we're recording now. I don't want to catch you saying anything. It, it is uh is it is it fair to say you were thrown out of this town or did you leave on your own volition? No, I, I left of my own volition. <laughs> you know, I was born I was born in San Francisco and yeah. lived in San Francisco until high school. Yeah. So I always always wanted to go back to San Francisco. Um, and we still have a place in San Francisco, but we spend most of our time in Belvedere. Oh, I love it up there. That is so great by the water too. Yeah, it's the it's the water that's that makes it. Well, we're so fortunate here in the Bay Area to have so much water all around us, and the weather is generally cooperating. I mean, much to the uh, uh, refrain of our friends up in Tahoe, but uh, you know uh, they get their share of snow, I guess. Exactly, especially this year. Yeah, but welcome to the look back. This is my podcast. Yeah, how, how many interviews have you done? I'm up to about 30 right now. Awesome. You're my first super angel. That's awesome. Yeah. So thanks for joining me. No, it's a pleasure. Well, it's, it's, um, it was a, it was a, um, uh, uh, something to do to keep myself amused and entertained as well as our, our peer network during the pandemic. I mean, it was such a crazy time that anything we could do to find a little bit of equilibrium, you know, we, we would gravitate toward. And that's what I did with this. That is awesome. Yeah. That is well, awesome. well, I'm glad I finally could corral you. I think the last time I saw you was probably at a live event at NASDAQ going over Correct. there to a couple of those events. Um, and before that, I wanted to say, I remember bumping into you a little bit prior to that in Cabo with our friend, Bill Campbell, who uh, yes. I always love mentioning his name, and I know you guys were so close. He was just a, a favorite of mine, an idol of mine, and I miss him. I know you do, too. Yes, yes. We we went to uh, Cabo every Easter uh, with, with the Campbells. Uh, Maggie's now married. Beautiful. And uh, she had an awesome wedding about a year ago mm. and, and is expecting. <laughs> and uh, and Jim's, Jim's still writing his book. Jim's oh, an author. That's great. So, so the, the whole family's doing great. Oh, well, I'm not, I'm not surprised they had a good coach. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I just wanted to give the proper hat tip to Bill. And uh, then just going back to you, I mean, how many people visited you down in Campbell, ironically, um, at personal training systems? Remember, I, I came down to visit you a couple of times and we'd go have lunch once in a while. You what sure a did. That was such a fantastic startup that you had 
back in the back in the old days of the Mac. Yes, yes. Uh, and and I helped start Alto's computer before that. Right. Uh, and after we went public and sold that to the Acer Group, then right. uh, I, I was intrigued with the idea of getting involved in in software because with hardware, so much of the margin, you know, with a computer system, so much of the margin goes to the cost of goods of, of the physical hardware. So I thought software would be a really exotic business model, not realizing that in software, in order to get visibility, you have to spend the same amount of margin uh, just telling people that you exist uh, in, the, in the software market. So there's, there's, no, there's no easy business. <laughs> Well, you, you, you actually, you actually proven that to be both true and false, but I mean, personal yeah. training systems was one I was intimately familiar with. Altos was a great run. Also, there's so much going on in the software world and the training world, but it's, I guess, I guess the interesting part for you was that transition from, you know, making goods to, you know, really investing in companies and, and helping um, develop those businesses as an angel. I know your story of working with Don Valentine from Sequoia, and he right. was another mentor of yours, helping you kind of pick. And you said, hey, okay, I've done hardware, software, what's next? And you said the internet. That might be interesting. <laughs> right, right. You, you know, uh, a- after, after personal training systems, I got together with Don and I said, hey, you know, I, I'm not crazy about having a ton of employees work for me. And, and he said, oh, wow, if, if you don't want to manage people, what you should be doing is uh, angel investing, where you're basically giving the founders advice. So he invited me to go on a few boards with him Cool. And actually start giving founders advice. And I fell in love with it. That was 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been investing in one company a week for 30 years now at, at SV Angel. Love it. Uh, and it continues to be as interesting as can be. I go back to 1.0 where I would see, I would catch up with you and you'd say, here, I'll send you a list of all the companies you were doing. It was right. amazing. The amount of companies and like, they were all such uh, great names, all destined to become heroes. And then ultimately, as we both know, the odds are not quite as attractive as they might seem from the outside. Right, right. Oh, it's hard. I mean, it's tough. <laughs> only 30% of companies even survive. Yeah. This is why I love founders so much. Founders are courageous. They're, they're going into the heat of battle. <laughs> It's courageous competitive is, out there. Courageous is one word. Crazy. Uh, yeah, a little crazy too, but that doesn't martyrs. hurt. <laughs> yeah, crazy does not hurt. It does It does take a certain breed. Um, I guess with that, I know you've had just a tremendous amount of success and people know your name, a hundred or exits or whatever the real number is, somewhere around there, right? Um, what's, yeah. what's, your, what's your favorite story or two that you look at and you say, gosh, we really did something special here. Or I'm so happy and proud of, of what, what companies come to mind when I, I throw those kind of adjectives out. Well, well, more recently, uh, it would be Airbnb, uh, which went public just a year ago. Yeah. And, um, I, I helped Airbnb from, from the very outset 
And e even though they were in the in the uh, guest guest business and the you know you know building a community of hosts who would then uh, have people into their homes, which people were very skeptical about, including me. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 the numbers don't lie. I mean, the worldwide worldwide people were waiting for this. Um, and it's great because it helps people uh, in the age of, of rising costs. It helps people, you know, get augmented income. Uh, but the funny thing about Airbnb is when they became a unicorn, I was with Brian Chesky in New York, helping him coordinate that financing. They, they ultimately picked Andreessen Horowitz to lead it. Um, but we conducted all the negotiations from, of all places, a hotel room in New York City and not an Airbnb because at get the, the time I, I was still nervous about using an Airbnb. So poor <laughs> Chesky is, is sitting in a hotel room, which was uh, as hypocritical as can be for, for a founder as fanatical as he is. Well, he is fanatical. He's going to go live for the next year or something, right? Only in Airbnbs, I think. I'm, yes, I'm, yes. And no, in the early days of the company, he, he lived out of a knapsack and and went to a different Airbnb every night in the early days. No, and, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you as such an a, a investor and such a, a claim. When you look at these deals, Ron, you know the economics backwards and forwards. You've got a great experience because you've looked at a thousand deals and a bunch in the category before you invest. So you really get, do they have the right model? And then there's the executive team or the founder or co-founders. When you evaluate those things, I'm assuming everything's got to be good. But what's the most important element to you when you make a decision on betting at the angel round? Well, for, for SV Angel... We look at the character and determination uh, of the founder themselves. We look at the person. Um, and, and that by far is our biggest, our, our biggest gauge of are we going to invest? Do, do we like this founder? Will this founder be able to recruit a team? Will they be able to recruit engineers out of, out of their competitors? Uh, will they be good leaders? Will they be, be good members of the community? Um, those are the traits we look for. Yeah. And, and that policy has treated us well. No, no question. It's, it's interesting too. There was a certain crop of things going on in, in, in 1.0. And now we're at, let's say, 2 or 3.0. And things have sort of evolved a little bit where I think the CEO has to become not just that passionate person, but they have to be more aware. You and I have both had conversations about um, issues of diversity and inclusion and more, um, more civic awareness among right. leadership and getting out of the old boys club kind of thing, which you know we might've seen and been privy to it at some points in our career. How do you think things are evolving and, and that makeup of that CEO you're looking for today versus that 1.0 era? Yeah, I think I think CEOs today are a lot more well-rounded. They're more aware. Um, the George Floyd tragedy was a real wake-up call. 
um, for all founders uh, and a wake up call for, for racial equity. Um, I'm working with several um, uh, uh, general partner of color VC firms are, are popping up. There's nothing better than a, than a venture fund that is focusing on founders of color and investing there. Um, and so I'm, I'm very closely mentoring uh, the, the general partners at Slauson and Co. And, and their, their theory of the case is fascinating. They say, you know, th there's two big ponds out there. There's a big pond with, with, uh, with white founders and then there's a big pond with uh, founders of color and nobody's fished in the pond, relatively speaking, yeah. in the pond with founders of color. And the people who fish there are going to get the cream of the crop. And so it's great that, 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 that we're going to get a flywheel going of, of uh, companies led by founders of color. Well, do you think we're going to see the acceleration there that uh, we saw as we moved in the internet economy and the 1.0 of a lot of companies getting funded? Or is it, is it more slow and gradual? Do you, see, do you see a lot of people jumping into this area? Because clearly things are still way out of balance, even though directionally things are being moved on and, and recognized. Yeah, yeah. I think things are headed in the right direction. But for the next couple of years, I think we're going to see huge growth. I hope so. In the number of investments in in uh, companies led by founders of color, you know, I'm talking about you know, two, three, four hundred percent growth. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for as well. And I know we've seen some improvements on the VC side in terms of partners, but I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought that was anywhere near done. Oh no, no, we have we're in catch up mode for a while. Yeah. Uh, and uh, gosh, we've been a privilege in these conversations, but I see the conversation trying to get open more. And I was going to transition a little bit. I, I maybe a little ahead of myself in your transition. You're very civic minded, very involved in some of the government stuff. What could be more challenging moving from the uh, the wild west of angel investments and doing startups to working in a government and, and bureaucracies and trying to get things moving in uh, in those institutions? I know you're close with with our governor and, and work with our mayor here in San Francisco. Yes. Um, I do believe that, you know, the tech industry is part of the community and we can't be insular. We've got to be civically active. And, um, you know, San Francisco right now, you know, has a, a big crime and homeless problem. And we can't put our heads in the sand and ignore that. The tech community needs to chip in with the mayor and, and get involved in these issues. And in the case of San Francisco, I think we could probably upgrade the quality of our board of supervisors. And we need to all get involved in the electoral process um, and, and, and get civically engaged. I know that you and, that and get philanthropically engaged too. Yeah, I was going to ask too because I know that I look at somebody like Mark Benioff, who I admire on on many levels, and and he puts his uh, money where his mouth is and really tries to support yes. efforts um, to to sort of curb homelessness, to make some improvements in, in other civic ways. But besides, 
you know, financially, how else do you get involved to bring about change? I know it's participatory democracy and certainly they can sit in groups and boards, but do you see some specific actions the tech community or the startup community should get involved in to, to create the, uh, this change? Well, uh, one group that, that I helped found uh, when Ed Lee was mayor was SF City. Mm -hmm. Uh, so San Franciscans for Citizens Innovation for Technology. And uh, SF City is, is kind of the, the trade group that represents the industry. And we have many, many tech companies who are members of SF City, and they, they represent the interests of, of the tech community in City Hall. So the more CEOs who participate in that, the better. I hope they listen to this podcast then to get more involved. I also feel like there's technology that can get infused into government in a way that goes beyond what it's doing today. Um, for example, voting, right? Can you believe we still take our little punch cards to right. a box and, and, uh, and we're having huge debates you know, nationally around this topic and we haven't moved to some data um, digital uh, solution that could open up the, the question of voting and, and stand by the accuracy of those results. Yes, there's lots of room for innovation. Um, and and I'm, in, I'm an investor in a couple of companies that, that are addressing you know, the voter automation issue uh, but, but yes, it's an important, important Maybe, one for democracy. Right. I'll send you, I'll send you a check for six figures or seven figures over a wire transfer. Um, but, but I can't vote, you know, right. um, it just seems like things are, um, out of step and well, that's what you get with governments and big bureaucracies. They're, they're, um, resistance to change and, and disruption, but, but time has come, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And this is an area where the tech community can, can really help. Okay, well, you could wrangle me into some more uh, comment about that. Let me ask you too, because you're <clears throat> so close here in the California politics, but certainly California civic issues. There's a lot of talk about it. Silicon Valley's done, or it's moving over to Austin and Boston and Florida, and it's you know Web three is going to be you know uh, it's going to skip San Francisco. Um, when you hear things like that, I know I I. You know, I shudder at that thought, but there is some movement out of San Francisco, and it's probably healthy to some degree to see the idea of Silicon Valley as a concept broadening out and becoming more of a national concept or international concept, if you will. Um, but where do you see the future for Silicon Valley in San Francisco over the next five or 10 years? Well, I, I think the, the number of new companies deciding to settle in the Bay Area is going to decrease. If you look at, at the blockchain and crypto, which we call Web3, that's extremely diverse, uh, uh, diversified geographically around the entire world. Uh, there's not going to be any dominant uh, headquarters for that. New York has a lot of crypto companies, yep. Yep. but but so does the Bay Area. Uh, but the companies that are in the Bay Area are growing so fast. Airbnb, DoorDash, uh, you know, still Salesforce, Google, Facebook, uh, Instacart. 
um, there's still going to be a vibrant job market in the Bay Area, but it it is going to be more geographically diversified. What what COVID taught everybody is everyone doesn't have to be in you know one or two locations that the workforce can be uh, spread around the world. Um, so that will take the spotlight off of the Bay Area, but that'll also help ease housing costs. It'll help ease con congestion costs. Um, but, but, but as far as innovation in general, mm -hmm. I, I think the Bay Area forever w will be number one. Yeah. It won't just be as far and away uh, number one. And that's good, right? Yeah. And that's good for the worldwide economy. It's good for tech companies to be in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, this is what Steve Case is doing with, with rise of the rise of the rest, right. uh, which is very healthy. We need to create vibrant economies, you know, in the, in the middle of this country. Yeah. I used to, own uh, and it'll help the political polarization right, uh, as well. We'll, we'll be a we'll be a, a benefactor of that. Yeah, we need that for sure. Um, let me turn back to your area of, of expertise as well, the angel side. Things have evolved for angel, and it's gotten to be such a huge cottage industry um, that it's almost like its own business now. <laughs> you know, becoming yeah. an angel investor. There's good and bad in, in all of this, right? What do you see as the major changes going on in the angel investing world today? What gives you um, optimism and hope and what concerns you a little bit? Well, what gives me optimism is there are so many angel investors out there today compared to 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's got, it has to have grown by thousands of percent of the number of angel investors. Right. The good news is that, says more innovation is going to get funded. And that's really good for the United States economy because uh, these startups are all job generators. Uh, what's, what's not so good with all the competition is you have investors out there that don't add as much value to the founder. They're just money, so to speak. Right. Now, as long as the founder goes into it, knowing that that particular investor is not going to add a lot of domain expertise, eyes wide open, then, then that's okay. Uh, but, but the downside is somebody investing in a company who thinks they have domain expertise and they actually give the founder bad advice. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I hope that founders look for angel investors who have domain expertise in the area that they're in that investor is going to be value add to them. Yeah, that's true. And then there's all kinds of other issues of security and compliance, et cetera. Uh, you got to be mindful of in the angel world as things broaden out, right? Correct. You don't, you don't want any founders making bad deals and going off into dark alleys and <laughs> in the yeah. business side. But we could skip that for a sec. What about the idea of all of the equity that's trapped in private shares in, in, in all of these private companies, your own portfolio, you, you have a ton of, of, of equity in hundreds of companies, I assume, over your funds. Um, do, do you see a scenario where that becomes more liquid and that becomes something that becomes more tradable in a, in a way that 
you know, mirrors what's happening in NASDAQ or at, uh, in, in some other areas? Or is there enough liquidity and options right now for private companies? Well, uh, the secondary markets for private shares is very, very large and lucrative. So if somebody has shares in a private company and they, they want to sell, the, and, and it's a decent company, there's very vibrant secondary markets. But the SV Angel way, we, we like to be patient and wait, wait, wait until the company decides that they want to go public. Um, we've never participated in, in secondary markets because our, we're old school. Our philosophy is, you know, until the assistant to the CEO can sell their shares, why should SV Angel be able to sell their shares any sooner when we aren't inside that company doing the work? Yeah. So we think the shares are really meant to be sold when the CEO and the team decide that they want a liquidity event and we'll ride along with them. We don't, we don't, we don't think we have any, we don't think we're so special that, that we get to be liquid before you know, the, the hardworking members of that team who don't have liquidity right. until the company goes public. Right. No, that's a, that's a great thing. I'm glad that I asked you that question and give you a chance to answer it too. The other way to look at it too is that I want to invest in some of these companies, but I'm not able to buy shares in them because they're private and they only want to work with larger VCs. Is there, is there something about the, the investor um, population that they get, they they get left out of that discussion or um, it's only for a certain accredited level investor. Do you well, think that's popular? I, I think it's kind of healthy that only accredited investors invest in these companies at the outset because they are so risky in the beginning. Yeah. So you, 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 you know, these, these accredited investor rules have a, they ha there's a reason for them existing. Mm -hmm. And I think I th I think it's because the 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 risk level of these companies is so high that that it's good they're safeguards. Yeah, gotcha. On on a final thought, Ron, this is my look back question. So you've had a fantastic run on the angel side, and you've had a great career as a, as an executive as an entrepreneur. Um, let's say Thank you're you. giving advice to one of those. Uh, great young family members who's uh, thinking about college, thinking about uh, an MBA or engineering school or thinking about starting a company or wants to, you know, go into venture. What, what would, what would you, what would your advice be? And I know it, maybe it's individualized, but, but in general, what are your thoughts about uh, people moving into um, their careers now? Well, my, uh, I've always been an OJT person. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that you can learn the most on the job. There you go. So when, when students come to me saying, should I go to business school? Uh, I say, hey, I've talked to a lot of people who went to business school and the biggest thing they picked up was a, was a good Rolodex. Yeah. But you can also pick up a good Rolodex and I think more knowledge by going out, getting a job, and learning in the actual work environment. Yeah. So I'm a big, big on-the-job training person. Big OTJ. Yeah. 
and then nail it before you scale it. But 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 interestingly, Ron, um, do you feel like you you got that edge working at a big company and see a startup company and having the that experience um, uh, from leaders who've done it before or people who have been experienced? You mentioned even Don Valentine. You got some great tutelage. Yeah, exactly. The the minute I got out of school. I went to National Semiconductor and National Semiconductor. It was a behemoth. Yeah, it was back in the 70s. But they they were like the Marine Corps of places to work. Uh, Charlie Spork, the founder, if if he saw somebody reading the newspaper during the day on the job, he would literally pick them up by the collar and physically throw them out of the building. And he didn't, he didn't mind who watched. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I call work ethic. Um, and building a good work ethic and being smart is, is as good as you can get. Um, and this is before the days of HR departments. There was nobody following him around saying, oh, you can't do that. Right. You know, this was, you know, this is rough and tumble, but rough and tumble in a really good way where, where everyone there was learning from each other. Yeah. That's great. So OTJ. Yeah. OJT. OJT. On the job training. On the job training. Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, any other uh, bits of wisdom I think is going to fall, fall in line there. No, I think just you know a, a, a good work ethic and persistence and sticking with it. That's what that's what makes these great founders. Well, that's great, and your mentorship I I know uh, helps a lot too. Hey, uh, thanks. We, a, thanks. we love helping them. Yeah, no, thanks a bunch uh, to you uh, for joining me here, sharing in parts some of this some of this wisdom, having some fun catching up with me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. You look well. Stay healthy. Stay good to uh, see you. Keep active, and uh, maybe I'll see you back in Cabo soon. You bet. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Ron. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Look Back. We do appreciate your support. Welcome any feedback, and would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, check us out at NewmanMediaStudios.com.